Okay, uh, good morning to everybody. Good to see you all here today. Okay, let's go to God in prayer as we prepare our hearts to listen to His Word expounded. Dear Fathers, we come before you today. We pray that you may fill our minds with not the thoughts of this world, but the thoughts of you and the life to come. And we pray that you will help us to understand your Word through the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I want you to think about a picture of God. Okay, now obviously we don't know what God looks like, like and we're not supposed to put idols of Him, but just think of what God means to you okay, as, as a visual picture of what God represents to you. Now, I know for some people, they may picture God as a harsh judge. Right? Someone who is, you know, always there, sternfully looking down from heaven, trying to pick up all the faults that we have in our life. Some other people, you may see God as a God who is far, far away, who is indifferent to our sufferings, indifferent to the troubles that we have in our life. He's like this absent person who just doesn't seem to really care very much. But I was reading Psalm, 100, uh, Psalm 91 for my quiet time last week, and I was struck by how the psalmist views God, and he viewed God in a few ways. He viewed God as a refuge, he saw God as a fortress, he saw God as uh, like a big uh, bird, and he was like a little chick, and he was sheltering under his wings, covered by his feathers. The psalmist in Psalm 91 lastly saw God as his dwelling place. Now I wonder whether we ever see God in those terms, terms which we feel are really personal and reassuring and very close uh, to us. Now today as we look at... Um, 1 Samuel chapter 21, we're actually continuing on uh, the whole story of 1 Samuel. And as we come to the second half of 1 Samuel, it actually ends up being like a chase story. Okay, so the first half of 1 Samuel was all about King Saul and the failure of King Saul before God. King Saul was unfaithful, disobedient, he was spiritually blind. But as we saw, when God said that he would no longer be king and the kingship would be given to someone else, which is namely King David, Saul rebelled against God and his will and decided that he would try to kill David. And so for the rest of uh, 1 Samuel, we really see King Saul chasing David. And uh, it becomes like, uh, you know, Forrest Gump. Remember, you all watch, have you all watched Forrest Gump? So what does Forrest Gump do in most of the movie? Run, right? Run, Forrest, run. And that's what David is doing, okay? So if you look up here on this map, okay, um, you, if you have done your Bible studies, you all should have seen this map. So... Basically, we've seen that uh, this is the capital of King Saul in Gibeah, and many attempts were made on David's life in Gibeah, and then that forced David to run to uh, here, Mizpah, uh, sorry, Ramah, where Prophet Samuel was, and he was protected by the Prophet Samuel and, and the Holy Spirit. And last week, we saw him come back to Gibeah to speak to Jonathan, King Saul's son. And this week, we see that he's gone to this place called Nob, okay, number four. And as we see here in verse one, Nob was where uh, many people believe the tabernacle was now is like the, 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 the place where people came from all of Israel to worship God in Nob. So in verse 1 it says, David went to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Now we see here that Ahimelech was the priest. He was probably the chief priest at the time. And he was trembling when he met David. Now Ahimelech wasn't cold. He was probably trembling with fear. I remember the prophet Samuel, he was afraid as well. 
when he was instructed by God to go and, and appoint David as king. And I think that Ahimelech probably felt the same emotions. He was trembling because he saw that David had come by himself without his usual soldiers, without his usual officials, and somehow he realized that something was wrong and David was on the run. He was a fugitive. And by helping David, he would become an enemy of King Saul. And nobody wanted to be an enemy of King Saul because Saul had a very bad personality and he would definitely punish you for helping his, uh, those he was unhappy with, which was especially David. So what did David do in verse 2? David answered Ahimelech the priest. The king sent me on a mission and said to me, No one is to know anything about the mission I'm sending you on. As for my men, I've told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. Now, in response to Ahimelech's fear, David tells the story uh, that he's actually on a secret mission. He's actually on a secret mission from King Saul. In fact, as we'll see later on, uh, in uh, verse 6, uh, sorry, in verse 5, he actually says that this secret mission is a holy mission. Now, uh, right here already in verse 2, we, we, uh, we come to this problem in the passage, right? Because if you all have been in the Bible studies, again, uh, in any of the Bible studies, people are saying, well, how can David lie, right? Is, is, is lying wrong? Because obviously, David is empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's the anointed king of God. Why didn't he just tell Ahimelech the truth? Now today, um, I'm actually going to talk about this issue. I, I put it down in the outline. I, sh- I should have taken it out. Then I don't talk about it at all. And just say, oh, well, we'll just move along. But it's a bit like uh, this big elephant in the room, right? You can't sort of ignore it. Because as we've been going along, there's been a bit of lying uh, as, we, as we've been looking at 1 Samuel. And we really need to address it because if not, it's kind of like um, ignoring the passage. So the first thing I want to say is, we, we can't get around the fact that David actually lied. David lied. Okay, I know that there are some commentaries which say, which say, well, actually, David wasn't technically lying. Because David was on a mission from the king. It just wasn't King Saul. It was God, the king. Right? And he was on a mission, but it was on God's holy mission to become the anointed king. But then it doesn't really work, right? Because the whole definition of lying is actually to... to to give people the impression of something that you know is not true. So even if David knows in his mind that he's on a mission from God, the impression that Ahimelech got was that he was on a mission from King Saul. So really that's deceitful, that's lying. So uh, if you can't understand that, let me just give you an illustration. So um, a while ago, um, I was invited to play golf. And uh, what had happened was, this person uh, was at a charity golf event. So at a charity golf event, usually what you do is you pay lots of money for charity and to make you feel a bit better, they give you one slot to play golf and you can invite your friends to play golf. So anyway, this rich man had bought these charity tickets for like, I don't know, $5,000 or something, which allowed him one flight of four golfers. So I was invited and uh, what happened was this rich man actually... Uh, he was so rich and he paid for these tickets, he couldn't be bothered going, even though he paid $5,000 to play golf, so he gave it to someone else. So this person was there playing golf with us, and the other people said, oh, you know, you're so generous for inviting us here to play today, how much did you pay to, to, to play golf today at this charity? And the guy who was given the tickets said, not too much. Now that's lying, isn't it? Because, yes, not too much in the sense that he didn't pay a single thing, because he was given it, Right, these golf tickets. 
but it was deceitful because he was actually giving the impression that he actually bought the tickets himself and he paid money to charity and therefore I invited you, isn't it? So that's the same thing in a way that, uh, that David is, is doing. He's, he's lying in the sense that he's deceitfully giving the impression that he's on a mission from King's Saul when in reality he's not. So he is lying. You can't get around that. Okay? You can't play cute and say that, you know, he was actually on a mission from God and that's what he meant because he was actually lying to him. Like. Now the big question then is, is it okay to lie? Now I know that um, the, the one way of looking at it is that, well, you know, David lied and this shows that David is imperfect. And really the only perfect person we see in the whole Bible is Jesus because Jesus doesn't sin. So this is just another, one of the wrong things that David does which shows that he's not a perfect anointed king of God. I think that that's a, that's a good observation. I think that's true. But I think that as we've been going through 1 Samuel, especially if you've been going through the Bible studies, you'll notice that a lot of the people that seem to fear God in 1 Samuel seem to be doing a lot of lying. So in chapter 16, the prophet Samuel lied when he went to Bethlehem to anoint King David. Remember chapter 16 verse 5, you can look it up in your Bibles. The people of Bethlehem came out and they said, Why are you here? And what did Samuel say? He didn't say, I'm here to anoint the king. He said, I'm here to offer a sacrifice. Okay, that's lying. Okay, can't get around it. Jonathan, in the last chapter, I know we didn't make a big deal of this, but I purposely chose to ignore it. Jonathan lied to his father, didn't he? He told his father, David asked me for permission to go away, and I gave him permission. That's a lie, because he knew that David was still around, and he was testing his father. So Jonathan lied. Samuel lied. And this passage, David lies to Ahimelech, and later, David lies to the king of Ashish in Gath, isn't it? And he pretends to be mad, because he's really not mad. So why are these three people who seemingly are the good guys in the story, they're all God-fearing, they're all uh, commended by God at various times, why do they all lie? Uh, is, is lying acceptable somehow? Well, okay, this is where you have to look at the Bible yourself, because this is just something that I've noticed, and uh, you know, you can't talk to me later, or you can disagree with me, because I think that this is not the main point of the passage, but in all those three times that those people lied, Samuel, Jonathan, and David, it seems as if life was in danger. You notice? Life was in danger. In all those three situations, they all were lying in a, when they were faced with a position of weakness. They were being persecuted overwhelmingly by forces beyond their control. They were all in a position of injustice and they were all facing evil and they were all trying to do God's will. So you think about the situation. If Samuel had spoken the truth, Saul had probably would come down and stop Samuel from anointing David. If Jonathan had spoken the truth, Jonathan would, might have to betray David. And if David had told, told the truth, King Saul would probably come and, uh, and get him. So uh, it reminds me of uh, the situation of the Jews in World War II. So you know in World War II, actually if you read the history of World War II, especially with the Jewish people who were persecuted under Hitler, Many a times, Christian neighbors would secretly save the Jews and house them in their houses. And on separate occasions, if you read the biographies and things like that, uh, the, the, the Nazi soldiers would come and knock on the door, knock, 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 right? And ask the Christian residents, are there any Jews here? 
And many times the Christians would be forced to lie to protect the Jews who are living in the house. And I think that, again, those situations were similar to the situations faced by Samuel, Jonathan, and David. Right? They were faced with life and death situation. There was exceptional uh, circumstances of weakness and persecution. They were faced with overwhelming forces of evil. And there was injustice. And that's why they lied. Now, again, this is up to you to decide whether that's right or wrong. But I'm just saying that's what seems to be happening here. But I think that what I want to make very clear that is in general life, in the life of you know, day-to-day living, we are not to lie. We're not to lie to save our careers. We're not to lie to further our careers. We're not to lie out of convenience. We're not to, to deceive our neighbor. We're not to lie to make ourselves look good by saying that we paid charity when we didn't. Okay, we're not to lie to take advantage of people. And neither are we to lie to deny Jesus or to be ashamed of God. But what seems to be happening here in 1 Samuel is quite an exception to the rule. Okay, so you think, just think about that, and uh, you can come and talk to me about that later. But anyway, so David f- finds himself lying, and uh, the priest obviously accepts his lie, because in verse 4 to 6, we see that the priest of Himelech gives food to David. So in verse 4, the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now here, David, obviously on the run, doesn't have any food, he's hungry, and he finds himself within a dilemma, isn't it? Because he goes to Ahimelech, and he asks for Ahimelech for food. The only problem is, the only food that Ahimelech has is the holy bread, the consecrated bread. And the law in Leviticus chapter 24, which is very clear up here, said very clearly that only the priests can eat the consecrated bread. Only the priests and those who serve in the temple can eat this bread. And God's law is very, very clear, very, very precise. And Ahimelech seems to know the law, right? In fact, he knows that it's consecrated bread. And not, not only knows it's consecrated bread, but he also knows the law about, about uh, the regulations on sexual relation. So, David needs food. He's got no food. And the only food available is this holy bread. In order to eat it, he has to break the law. But yet, as we see here, Ahimelech gives him the bread. Now, as we read it, that's just the way it is. It doesn't explain to us why Ahimelech does this, gives it to him, why we are to, you know, he is eating the bread, why he breaks the law, how are we to understand this? Now, the lesson of uh, Bible reading is whenever you read the Bible, if the text is not clear on why something is happening, the first rule of the Bible reading is see in other places of the Bible which re- where it refers to the same story. Okay, now that's why I want to recommend to you when, you when you buy your Bibles, obviously some of you already got your Bibles, or some of you got iPhones or iPads, but buy Bibles with cross-references. Okay, so 
A cross-reference Bible is where, you know, you've got those uh, small print at the top, in the middle of the page, or at the back, bottom of the page, where if, 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 uh, if this part of the Bible is referred to in another part of the Bible, it will tell you. Okay, because that helps you understand the Bible better. So if you look at your cross-reference Bible, for those of you who have your cross-reference Bible, if you look at this event, you will see that this event is referred to by Jesus in three Gospels. Okay, Matthew chapter 12, in Mark chapter 2, in Luke chapter 6. Can you see that in your cross-reference Bibles? Does anybody have a cross-reference Bible? Don't know, huh? Maybe you're sleeping. Okay, anyway, so if you look up here on the slide, in Luke chapter 6, okay, Jesus refers to this incident. Now, we read 1 Samuel 21 and we think, ah, oh, what a simple, short chapter it is. But actually, it's a very, very important passage in the Bible. It keeps being referred to in Psalms and by Jesus. So Luke chapter 6, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain field. His disciples began to pick some heads of grain. So, you know, they're walking along, they're grabbing them, they're rubbing in their hands, and they're popping into their mouth like popcorn, okay, eating the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is, not, what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, now I want you to pay attention to this, okay? This phrase, because this is the main phrase that keeps coming up in all the three Gospels. Matthew chapter 12. Next one. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, so again, pay attention. Jesus says that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And last of all, Mark chapter 2. Okay, great. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along and they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, which is Ahimelech, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is the Lord, even of the Sabbath. So we see here in the cross three Gospels, same incident referred to, same speech by Jesus, and the situation is exactly the same. What was happening was, Jesus was saying, look, David did what was, un what was not lawful, according to the law. He ate the holy bread. You are accusing me and my disciples of eating grain on the same day. And he says that the two things are connected, right? You, you we're both accused of doing unlawful things. David for eating the consecrated bread, my disciples for eating grain and plucking the, the grain on the Sunday. Yet in both those instances, Jesus says, 
that there was an exception made for both David and for himself. They were both, in a sense, innocent of breaking the law. And why is that? Because of who they were, isn't it? Jesus said that because he was the Lord of the Sabbath, he would be given exception from breaking the law in that sense. See, if you go back to the next slide, next, uh, next slide on, Matthew 12, notice what Jesus says. He says, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. Because of the greatness of Jesus, he is greater than the temple itself, he is greater than the priest in the temple, therefore, he is innocent of breaking the law. And that's what he's actually saying about David. David, in a sense, was also given an exception by God to eat the holy bread because of who he was. He was the anointed king, just like Jesus was the anointed king. Just as Jesus was special and given, uh, was innocent of breaking the law, so David was special and was given an exception to eating the holy bread. So I think what's happening here as we come back to 1 Samuel is that Ahimelech actually giving the bread to David is what Jesus calls a revelatory event. It reveals who Jesus is. Sorry, it reveals who uh, David is. Okay, it reveals that David is a special person. He's not as special as, as Jesus, but he's special because he's the anointed king. So God allows him to be specially provided for with the holy bread. And I think this is really, really important, even though we may not think it's very important at the moment. But as we will look, as we will see, it actually shows that all along, God is looking after David. See, if you look at chapter 18, 19, and 20, we see that David saves himself, or is saved by various people. Jonathan helps David. Micah, his wife, helps David. Samuel helps David. But all along, actually, it is not these people who are helping David. It is God. God is helping David. Right, this is what's happening here. God is providing the holy bread for David to eat. Now, this is very important because as we will see, God continues to help and protect and look after David. So, in the next chapter, oh, sorry, in the next uh, um, incident, David then goes to Gath, right? So, next slide. So, he's already gone to the knob where he ate the holy bread and then also we see he gets the sword of Goliath. Where does he go to after that? Well, in verse 10, David that day fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath, which is here. Alright, you see that this part of Philistine territory. Now, David must have been a very desperate man. Alright, because uh, Gath was uh, a place where he would be the least popular person. The reason would be because uh, David, as we had seen, had killed Goliath. And where did Goliath come from? Goliath had come from Gath. He was their hometown hero. And David had killed him, right? So if you look up here on the slide, next slide, right? The champion, they had a champion named Goliath who was from Gath. And David killed him. And now David walks into town and what sword is he carrying? The sword of Goliath. And not only that, David's name was like renowned in chapter 18 verse 20 because he was the most successful of Israel's leaders in killing the Philistines. So David would have been public enemy number one to the Philistines. And yet David was hiding in Gath because he was so scared of King Saul. Now as we read 
obviously this is a dumb idea, because in verse 11, the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence and while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, marking, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Akish said to his servants, Look at the man. He is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Now, if you put yourself in David's shoes, he's got enemies everywhere. He is so desperate that he leaves Israel, God's people, to go to, to, to Gath. And in Gath, he is now confronted with enemies all around as well. Now, if we look at the 1 Samuel chapter 21, it doesn't really tell us much about what David is thinking. We just know what he's doing. He's acting like a madman. Now, the lesson for us obviously cannot be that when you're confronted with lots of enemies, to act like a madman. Correct? There must be a deeper significance to this. And again, like I said, even though we read some. One, uh, sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 21, we think it's such an insignificant passage. But yet, it's recorded for us in the three Gospels, but also in two Psalms. And two Psalms actually refer to this particular event and teach us what David is actually thinking. So what is David thinking during this time? So in Psalm 56, which is up here, we didn't read this, but you should have read it in your Bible studies. I'm going to summarize the main passages, okay? You see there's a, there's a contrast between... Oh, the colors, okay? See, the, the colors mean something. You can figure out that's good. Okay, anyway, it says that Psalm 56 was written when the Philistines had seized David and Gath. Be merciful to me, O God, for men hotly pursue me. All day long they press their attack. My slanderers pursue me all day long. Many are attacking me in their pride. Okay? So this is the problem that he's facing, right? People are pressing in and trying to attack him. And what does David do? When I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God whose name I praise, in God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can mortal men do to me? Okay, so we are told the problem, this is the solution. And again he goes back to the problem. Verse 5. All day long they twist my words. They are always plotting to harm me. They conspire, they lurk, they watch my steps eager to take my life. Okay, then in verse 10 he says, In God whom, whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? See, he's, he's got enemies everywhere. They're pressing in on him all day long. And where does he turn to help? To God, isn't it? I trust God. He keeps, that, that word trust keeps appearing over and over again in Psalm 56. Okay, look at, let's look at Psalm 34. Okay, Psalm 34. Okay, this was written after he pretended to be insane before Ahimelech, who drove him away and he left. And this is what he counsels uh, people. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. 
The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Evil will slay the wicked and the foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. So, so even though David here is pretending to be mad, his trust is not in his acting skills, right? He is not uh, George Clooney or something, okay? His trust is in God. The two refrains from Psalm 34 and 26 is, I will trust in God, I will take refuge in God. Now, this is a very, very real situation for David. You know, he, he's being rescued over and over again by God. God gives him the food, God gives him the sword, the sword but he is still forced to flee and everywhere he turns, there are enemies. And I think that the thing that we are to learn from this passage from David is that he keeps finding trust in God. He keeps finding refuge in God. That is the mindset that David has all along in all his troubles. Now, I know that this is so important for us because the difficulty for many people, I find anyway, is that the more troubles we have, the way that we respond sometimes, especially when I speak to people who have left God or left the church is, they run away from God. Right? I've got lots of problems. And instead of running towards God for refuge and trust, I run away from God. But David is opposite. The more trouble he has, the more conflict all around him, the more slander he's facing, the closer he trusts in God, and the more he finds refuge in God. You notice he doesn't blame God and say, you know, I'm the anointed king, God. How can you do this to me? How can you let all these people be against me? You know, I'm supposed to be the king. No, he doesn't do that. The harder things get for David, the more he seeks God. I wonder whether that should be a lesson for us. Do you find that as the more pressed in by the world you are, the more you run and take refuge in God and trust God, or do you run away from God? Now you notice also, especially in the first Psalm there, in, first, in Psalm 56, when, when the problems come, part of how uh, David sees the problems is he sees it as people slandering him, people twisting his words, people plotting to harm me. And I think that when he says that, he's not referring so much to the Philistines, but actually to God's people, the Israelites, isn't it? And it's interesting because what he's actually saying is even though God's people are plotting and undermining him, even King Saul, God's anointed at that time, was plotting and undermining him, he kept trusting in God. Now part of the problem that I think many Christians face is that when other Christians let us down, and I've met Christians, ex-Christians, who say, oh, you know, I left my church because of how Christians treated me, how Christians behave." But you notice that doesn't stumble David. David doesn't say, oh, because of how the, my Christian brothers and sisters are, are treating me in Israel, I will leave God. No, he doesn't say that. He actually runs closer to God. He takes refuge in God and trusts more in God in spite of how God's people were treating him. I remember um, there was this um, uh, missionary lecturer in my theological college, uh, Mike Rater. He used to tell me how, actually in the mission field, the number one reason for people leaving the mission field was not the mission field itself, but relationships between missionaries. And he said how sad it was, isn't it? Because, because of how Christians treat one another, their, their relationship with God is affected. 
But when you look at David, it's opposite. God's people in Israel were treating him badly, but his relationship with God was actually getting stronger. He took refuge in God and he trusted in God, even when the people around him, God's people in Israel, were pressing in on him. So in conclusion, as we look at it's actually a very short chapter. Now, when we look at David, we see all the action happening, but behind all the action, David continues to trust in God and take refuge in God as God looks after him. That, that is what is really happening under everything that's happening here in the surface. And I think that that's what we should take to heart. God looks after David, and David keeps trusting in God and finding refuge in him. I remember reading this book many years ago. I'd like to recommend it to you if you've never read it, called Knowing God by J.R. Packer. And he relates this story in the beginning of chapter 2, where he said that... Um, that uh, that target right? Where is the story? Anyway, I'll tell you the story because I know the story, but I can't find the page. But anyway, in the story in the beginning, what he said was he, he knows of this theological lecturer who was forced to resign from theological college because he held on to a biblical understanding of God's grace. Okay, and he said, look, you know, it doesn't matter what everybody else said or did, it doesn't matter that I was forced to leave theological college, but what really matters is, I know God. And that's why he said, title is Knowing God, because I know God. And I thought, that's a wonderful theme, isn't it? That's exactly what is happening here. David knew God. Didn't matter what other people were doing to him, doesn't matter what situation was, he knew God and he trusted God and took refuge in him. So like I said in the introduction, how do you see God? Do you see God as far, far away? An angry God who is only there to keep picking all your faults? Do you see God as an indifferent God who is, you know, like this stern uncle who really doesn't want to have any part to play in your life? Or do you see God as your refuge, as your, your dwelling place, as your fortress, sheltered under his wings? Because I think that's the way that David saw God. He always took refuge in him and he always trusted him no matter what happened around him. And I think that that's the lesson for us today. No matter what happens in the whole world around you, keep trusting God. Keep taking refuge in Him. So let's go, go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see how even in the midst of all His problems and all His troubles and all His difficulties, you are watching over your servant David. Help us to learn from David's attitude to you for he was a man after your own heart. And he trusted in you. He sought refuge in you time and time again. That indeed, even when Israel, your people, were against him, he continued to have faith in you. Dear Father, you know each and every one of us here. You know the troubles that we face at times. And we pray that you may never cause us to doubt you. That we may never turn away and run away from you, but rather keep running closer to you in our times of need and to take refuge in you and to trust in you in everything. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.